My name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you all so much for hanging out with us this morning. Uh, Hopefully you grabbed yourself uh, some coffee. Uh, If you're new, uh, there should be these connect cards on the rows before you. Uh, Man, we'd love to hang out with you, so be sure to fill one out. Drop it in the offering basket that goes around later on during service. And uh, man, we'd love to connect with you. Uh, In addition to that, uh, we also have some Bibles in the rows that are there before you. That's our gift to you if you do not uh, have one. Uh, With all that being said, before we dive into our time, two times a month, we do this thing called uh, a missions moment. An emissions moment is really just a brief opportunity for us to share and inform uh, y'all about what we're doing behind the scenes missionally. And so this applies to not just how we are engaging our city and our community, but also how we're involved in the ministry of church planting. And so a couple of weeks ago, I introduced to y'all Christ Redeemer church out in Moreno Valley, California. It's led uh, by Martin Medina and, uh, and how we are financially uh, supporting that church plant. But in addition to that, he receives some coaching. Part of my job is to invest in the, in the ministry in the area of church planting. Uh, at this moment, we're not in a place where we're sending uh, teams to plant churches, but we are in a position where God has been very generous uh, or has been very faithful through your generosity. We are in a position where we do support other church plants, whether it's financially or through coaching opportunities. And uh, with that, we are a part of the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. And so if you want to learn more about who Acts 29 is, you can visit acts29.com. But essentially, it consists of, I think now it's 13 networks. Not all of them are in the United States any longer. Uh, Many of them are in just several parts of the world. We have Acts 29 Latin America that it's breaking off into just being Central America. Mexico is becoming its own network. Brazil is becoming its own network. South Africa is becoming its own network. And when I say that these areas are becoming their own network, what I mean is that these areas are becoming saturated with church plants. And so rather than having a director oversee such a large space uh, of what we used to consider Latin America, now they're just focusing in on certain parts of that country. And that's a good thing. That means the gospel is being preached. The gospel is being proclaimed. The gospel is spreading to areas where maybe there have not been gospel-centered churches in a long time. For instance, one of the one of the partnerships we have within Acts 29 is with Acts 29 Mexico. Uh, and those guys are assessing and testing church planters. One in particular is going to Cuba. That, that, that's amazing. So we got one guy going out, him and his family are going out to Cuba. Anyway, all that being said, we are a part of the South Central region, which consists of Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas, and Nebraska. And so we are one of the larger regions, uh, but we're involved in uh, a ton of coaching opportunities. Uh, but the niche of Acts 29, if I could, if I could just call it that, the niche of Acts 29 is assessing church planters either as they are pastoring established churches or as they go and plant new churches. And so if you want to learn more about Acts 29 and what we do uh, or what more we do with them behind the scenes, I'd love to talk about that. We can talk about that later. But that's the Acts 29 network in a brief nutshell. 
With that being said, I'd like for us to dive into our times. Uh, and uh, what I'd like to do is really open up with a series of questions and then eventually take us into a brief story. And so have you ever heard or has anyone ever told you that following Jesus would be easy? Or maybe that following Jesus fixes all of your problems. Maybe you've heard things like, if you accept Jesus, your marriage will be fixed. Or if you accept Jesus, you'll finally find the job you're looking for. Or maybe once you start following Jesus, you're going to get a spouse. Or once you follow Jesus, you won't be depressed anymore. Your hard times are beyond you. Earlier this week, I was speaking with a woman, and uh, she was explaining to me that unfortunately, where she's at in life right now, in terms of her and her husband, that divorce seems to be the only and best option just because of man, how miserable they, they say that they are. And I was really, if I'm honest, I was tempted to say that she needed Jesus, or I was tempted to tell her, you need Jesus because it'll all be better. It'll all be better. I wanted to tell her that. But as I thought about it, I later ended up explaining that while I don't want that to happen, divorce wasn't going to address the root of their hearts. And it's not that Jesus cannot redeem their marriage. I believe that he can because I've seen it by his grace. Jesus can totally redeem their marriage. But my desire for her to know Jesus is simply first that she would come to know Jesus and that the condition of her heart would be changed by his spirit so that as she looks at her marriage, she now looks at it through the lens of the gospel. That doesn't mean that there won't be work. That doesn't mean that it's not going to include hardship. It doesn't mean any of those things. But what it does mean is that the condition of her heart Lord willing, his heart, her husband, would be changed, that their eyes would be fixed on Jesus, and that they would look at their season, or that they would look at their circumstance through the lens of the gospel. All of that being said, here's my point. Following Jesus is hard. And the truth is that although we might be right with God through faith in Christ, we still have an enemy. A couple weeks ago, we walked through, um, or for the past couple of months, we walked through a series in 1 Peter. And toward the end, we read that Satan prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Additionally, throughout Scripture, God's people are set apart. And while they are no longer citizens of this world, they and we are still in the midst of hostility within this world. In the end, for the Christian, we are at spiritual war. And we have an enemy. And he has an army. And there is plenty of influence and opposition on the outside to thwart us. And to top it off, you and I still have our own spiritual corruption. 
a desire from within us to run from God and indulge in the hopeless satisfaction of our desires. It still exists within us. Elsewhere in Peter, he says that the desires of our flesh, these passions, wage war against our soul. And so the ultimate question then is, well, what do we do? That we, while we may not be an enemy of God, that the Christian may not be an enemy of God anymore, we still have an enemy. And so what is it that we do? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us to put to death the deeds of the body. Another way of saying it is to put sin to death. The King James Version of the Bible says to, quote, mortify our sin. It's a really cool word. It's also a really good band, mortification, if you're interested in them. And so what I want to do is, I want, first, I want to invite you to Romans chapter 8, verse 13. We're going to look at that verse. We're going to look at a lot of other scripture. It's kind of going, it's kind of going to be our launching pad for our time today. And so what I'd like to do is read it and then pray. This is Romans 8, verse 13. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray. God, as we come before you, uh, I think it's an understatement to say that following Jesus is hard. I think sometimes when we begin to talk about killing sin, some of us may already be discouraged because it's exhausting. Some of us may already be discouraged because we failed at it this morning. God, my uh, prayer is that through our time this morning, the core of our heart, the core cry of our heart would be the words of of Zephaniah where he says, not by my strength, but by your spirit. God, I pray that through uh, our time today and through this series, we would learn to rely on your Holy Spirit and to fix our eyes on Jesus. I pray that this time would be a time where you are glorified and worshiped and that this would be a time for our good. God, I pray that hearts um, would be broken over the truth of your word, not by me, but the truth of your word so that we would come to know Jesus better or so that some would come to know Jesus today. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So as we walk through this, uh, this sermon, similar to last week, I'm going to answer some questions, and so we have several points, because I love that. But before we get into that, I want to give you just a brief review of where we find ourselves. So last week, we started a sermon series called Revival, Spiritual Renewal in the Ordinary. Now I want to explain that very briefly as we dive into the rest of our time today. Last week, we defined, or I defined revival as 
an extraordinary work of the Spirit of God in the people of God. I'll say one more time. Revival is defined as the extraordinary work of the Spirit of God in the people of God. See, we use the word extraordinary not because we beg or are asking God to do something new, different, or unusual, but because we are begging and asking God to do more of what he's already doing. That for the Christian, the Holy Spirit already dwells in you, and as a result, the Holy Spirit's job is to counsel and convict and transform and comfort. And so what we are asking God in a time of revival, what we are asking God for is for him to do more of what he is already doing. We are asking him to intensify his work for a season. Now, if we define it that way, that says a lot about what revival is. That means that revival, shortly, is a work of God and not an event. Biblically and historically, revival is a work of God, not an event put together. And if you want to learn more about that, you can go back to next, last week's sermon. And so as a result, in revival... A couple of things are required of us. And so throughout our time today, we're going to reference some of those. But as a brief recap, a couple of the things that are required of us in revival are, for instance, humility. That if we are begging God to do more of what he is already doing, humility is required. That we deny ourself in light of who God is, and what we are asking God to do. Dependence on God is also required, but that dependence comes from him revealing himself to us through his word. When we are talking about dependence, I think sometimes we want tangibility. I want to touch something. I want to hold something. What can I depend on? We can depend on the word of God because the word of God penetrates and discerns the thoughts of the heart. Revival also requires honesty. In particular, as we look at what killing sin means today, as we look at that today, a great level or a great deal of honesty is going to be required from you and I. And so revival requires honesty that we are straight up and up front with what's on the table. And I think that's easier said than done. Nevertheless, it requires honesty. And as we look at what is required of us today, we're going to see that revival requires the killing of sin as Paul mentions in Romans 8, 13. And so some of you like to take notes. Uh, don't take notes just yet. Once we start getting into the questions, you'll know what I'm talking about. Then you can start taking notes. Right now, I just want you to place your attention once more on Romans 8, 13. I want to read it one more time because Paul gives us some pretty clear instruction here. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here's what Paul is saying. He is saying putting sin to death is the duty of the believer. 
putting sin to death is the duty of the believer, which then implies that if you do not know Jesus, killing sin is not necessarily on your agenda yet, knowing Jesus is. The individual who does not know Jesus still has a mind that is hostile to God, which means that you are still an enemy to God. Killing sin means knowing Christ first. And if you know Christ, then it is your responsibility to put sin to death. Additionally, putting sin to death is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul lays it out really well. But if by the Spirit, in other words, if you live by the Spirit, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, if you belong to Jesus, as if you have not only committed, but surrendered yourself to the Lordship of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And if the Spirit dwells in you, then you are not putting sin to death alone. You're doing it through and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This leads us to a fancy word called sanctification. Sanctification is where you and I grow in godliness while simultaneously growing in the hatred of our sin. You cannot grow in godliness and a love for Christ while at the same time still loving sin. It don't work that way. Growing in our sanctification, in our godliness, means not allowing ungodly desires to receive gratification. Sanctification means that the new self, who you are in Christ, is growing in godliness and the old self is being put away. If you want some scripture to study, you can read Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, 2 Corinthians 5. Over and over again, the apostle Paul is saying that the new is here, the old is no more. That as you have received Christ, put on the new self and the old self put away. And so that's what Paul is saying. It's a, it's a beautiful, uh, I guess, example or explanation of sanctification, that we have responsibility, but this responsibility comes from the power of the Holy Spirit already in us. So with that being said, that was our brief look at Romans 8.13. We need to ask some questions. And I love, I love questions. The first one is, this is where you can take notes, by the way. The first one is, why must sin be put to death? And we'll go one question at a time. Why must sin be put to death? Well, the first reason is because sin is still active and dwelling within us. Remember, revival and in our time, we're going to have to be honest. Okay? It's required of us. We're going to have to be honest. Sin still is active and dwells or is indwelling. It's within us. See, Christ's work on the cross does a number of things for the believer. For instance, it is the grace of God that has saved us from the wrath of God. That's one thing. 
It's not just that we have been forgiven of our sins. We must understand what we have been saved from first. We have been saved from the wrath of God by the grace of God. One of the other things that Christ's work accomplishes is the removal, and this happens through his resurrection, it is the removal of the power of sin in the believer. That if you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And as a result, sin no longer has power over you. That your chains have been broken. That you are no longer a slave to unrighteousness, but to righteousness. Said it simply, you have the power to say no to sin. You can do that. But also, one of the realities is that although the work of Christ has done these things for the believer the presence of sin still lingers. We have still have not been saved from the presence of sin. What do you mean the presence of sin? I mean when we're dropping the ball, like, like we did this morning, maybe even 10 minutes ago, maybe even on the way over here, maybe just now. I don't know, because the coffee wasn't hot enough. I don't know, right? You know what I mean? <clears throat> sin still lingers. And so as a result, we must put sin to death. Number two, sin hardens our hearts toward the gospel and others. Look, if we're honest, sin is like cancer. It begins to spread, and it doesn't just focus in one area. It may manifest itself in one area, but it does not stay there. It almost becomes like this leaky faucet, this slow drip into other areas of your life. Some days or some seasons, it's a leaky faucet. Other days, it's on full blast where it's spilling over into the rest of your life or into these other avenues of your life. And just like, I have, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this because I know nothing about plumbing. Just like a leaky faucet, what tends to happen is that uh, calcium starts to develop and so it hardens it. The same thing happens to your heart. If we don't put sin to death and we allow that leaky faucet to continue to pour out however slow or however fast, at some point your heart will develop calcium. It will become hardened. And once your heart becomes hardened, it will be hostile toward the grace of the gospel, and it will become hostile towards others. We can look at, for instance, something like bitterness. Bitterness always, or I should say generally, begins or starts with, like, it's like the size of an acorn. But if left unattended, 
It eventually grows. And as it grows, it consumes. And that growth can happen as quickly as a couple of weeks or a couple of months, or that growth can happen as slow as several years if left unattended and unaddressed. We must kill sin in order to guard our hearts because sin hardens our hearts toward the gospel and toward others. That's the question. That was question number one. Question number two, and what we'll try to do is get a little bit more practical with each question. Question number two is, well, what does it not mean to put sin to death? And what does it mean? Right? What's what doesn't it mean to put sin to death? And then what does it mean to put sin to death? All right, there's five things. If you have the app or something like that, I'm sure they're on there. There's five things. I want to start with, this is what killing sin is not. Number one, killing sin is not behavior modification. Killing sin is not behavior modification. Again, we need to be honest. Sin begins with the condition of the heart. In the Gospels, Jesus says that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Elsewhere, he says that it's not what's on the outside that defiles you. It's actually what's on the inside that defiles you. That everything from envy, bitterness, lust, anger, immorality, all of those things, out of the heart will those things be produced, and then the mouth will either say them or you'll act on them. And so we need to be honest. Because if we think that killing sin is simply behavior modification, then we're not only going to preach a false gospel, but if we're honest, all we're doing is cleaning the outside of the cup when in reality we're filled with dead bones inside. And we're never necessarily addressing the condition of our heart. So will things change outwardly? Sure, they're going to change outwardly. But those things are going to change outwardly because of what is happening inside. It is an overflow of what God has done and who God says we are that things change. Not that we're just trying to clean the facade and make the cup look nicer. In fact, the whole clean cup, dead bones analogy comes from Jesus. I think it's in Matthew 23, and that's what he's telling the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You clean the outside of your cup. In other words, you're worried about what you look like on the outside, but inside you're really just filled with dead men's bones. Killing sin is not just behavior modification. I want to take you to Hosea 6. And I'll expand on this one. It's verses 1 through 6. You can just go ahead and listen to this. It's not up there. This is what the writer says. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. 
Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Before diving into verse 4, here's, here's what they're saying. They're saying, okay, we, we recognize that we've dropped the ball. Let's just go to the Lord, and he's going to do some work, and we'll be good to go afterward. We'll be good to go afterward. Like, let's just talk about, let's just have that quick conversation, right? Like, they're not repenting. They're just seeking relief. You know what I mean? And then in verse 4, God responds, and he says, What shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have honed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. And so what they're saying is, man, you know what? Uh, I just don't like this sin stuff. I just want relief. They don't want repentance. They want relief. They don't want a relationship with the Lord. They just, hey man, let's make this fast so that we can just get back to whatever it is that we were doing. And God responds to them and he says, what am I going to do with you? You're like the morning dew. Or is it pronounced dough or dew? It's dew, right? It's, you're like the morning dew, right? The, the dew that is on the grass and the flowers in the morning. He's like, at some point during the day, it fades away. That's what your love is like for me. No, you don't really want, you're, you're not seeking repentance. You're seeking relief. That's behavior modification. We're not seeking repentance. We're seeking relief. That's all it is. It's not because we hate our sin. We just hate the consequences. There's a difference. So killing sin is not simply behavior modification. Number two, killing sin is not quieting sin. Here's what I mean by that. Just because, excuse me, just because your sin is quiet Maybe it hasn't surfaced in a while. I don't know. It's pride or lust or self-righteousness or whatever. Just because it's quiet doesn't mean it's dead. It's just that. It's just quiet. Just because your sin is quiet doesn't mean it's dead. Okay? Again, we need to be honest about that. Killing sin is not just quieting our sin. Because when we do that, when we think that our sin is dead, and really all it is, it's quiet, or we let our guard down. Oh, I'm good. I've been victorious over this. You just let your guard down. Which kind of leads us into the next one, right? Killing sin is not deflecting. So you let your guard down, and so you trade your sin for another one. I have defeated this sin, therefore I will trade it for self-righteousness. Though you might not say it that way. Killing sin is not deflecting it. It's not negotiating. And so let's look at, well, what does it mean to kill sin? We could look at a ton of things. I don't, I don't want to go too much into that. We can look at a ton of things, but let's look at two things. What, what does it mean to kill sin then? We're still not in the practical. We're not in the how-to yet. We're, we're looking at the what. So what does it mean to kill sin then? I think the first one, and this actually comes from the Puritan John Owen. 
If you want a good book to read, in particular on the killing of sin, it's called On the Mortification of Sin by John Owen. Uh, let me just, it's, you can find it online for free. It's a really good book. Uh, but Homeboy is like dense. Like, like what you can say in, what he should say in one sentence, he says in eight pages. So just be aware of that, okay? Um, here's, here's one of the first things he says. Habitual weakening. That you grow habits into weakening your sin. My son and I used to watch this, uh, this, this YouTuber. His name is Coop something, I don't remember. And he would review Nerf guns, right? He would review Nerf guns and he would do a really great job at them. And eventually he would start talking about uh, HVZ games. If you're not in the know, HVZ games is humans versus zombies. And so he would talk about HVZ games and he would talk about uh, the different kinds of uh, players that would show up. And he would use these two terms to, to kind of help, uh, help you understand who is who in terms of their experience or how serious they are about HVZ. And he would say, man, this guy is tactical and this guy is more tactical, right? The idea behind someone who was tactical was the individual who had all of the gear, all of the attachments, you know, all of the accessories, nerf bling everywhere, right? Like he would just be all out. And as they would participate in HVZ, within the first couple of minutes, they would die and get eaten by zombies, right? They would die and get eaten by zombies because they didn't know why they were there. <laughs> they didn't know what it meant to play in HVZ, and they didn't know how to play in HVZ. And so we could, if we're going to use this weird analogy of nerf, right? Like the zombies are sin. And so, you know, these tactical people were eaten by their sin, right? On the other hand, he would talk about being tactical. Now, I'll set Coop aside. There's this former special ops guy. His name is Pat McNamara, and he's great. I'll read and watch anything Pat McNamara. And every Sunday on Instagram, he puts these things called Sunday sermons. And these Sunday sermons are Sunday Sentinel sermons. And these sermons are all about, it's a one-minute glimpse into how to be prepared and aware when, when things, go, things go wrong, right? And he talks about th or threats, right? Uh, when threats happen, this is, how, this is what you need to do. But before we talk about those threats, you need to learn how to become aware, and you need to be prepared. And prepared doesn't mean just having a stockpile of X, Y, and Z. It also means knowing how to use it so that when the threat happens, you can engage it offensively, and you're not caught off, you're not, you're not uh, caught unprepared or unaware. And he always ends these Sunday Sentinel sermons by saying, make it habitual. And what he's saying, or what he means is, that as you grow in awareness, and as you grow in preparedness, you need to make this habitual. You need to not only know the why, you need to know the how. How do you use the equipment that you have? Why do you use the equipment do you have? What are the means in which you're going to use this equipment? Because it's not that uh, the threat may happen, it's when it happens, are you going to be ready? Blah, blah, blah. 
Some Christians, and this might be you, you might be, and we're going to go corny, right? You might be a tactical Christian, right? In other words, what I mean by tactical is, I don't know, man, maybe you put your faith in Sunday attendance. Maybe you place your faith because you write a check to the church. Perhaps you place your faith in the fact that you have a goat-skinned leather Bible, Maybe you place your faith in how long you have been a Christian. Maybe you place your faith in who your parents are and what they've believed. Whatever it is, you have all of the cool attachments, you know the language, you even have all of the accessories, you just don't have Christ. Or we can be tactical Christians in the sense in the sense that we are aware that sin is real, sin is here, sin is an enemy. Therefore, we ought to stand firm in the armor with the armor of God so that as sin comes, we are prepared to respond. You're going to be one or the other. And that's what habitual weakening is. It's not just that you know some scripture from 10 years ago. It's that that scripture is active in you right now as you stand firm. Not so that you can stand firm in the future, but as you stand firm now. It's all present tense. That's habitual weakening. Number two, killing sin is constantly fighting. I think it's in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, uh, we must fight the good fight of faith. That's not just that you die at an older age. That is a continuing fighting of our sin, fighting temptation. And I'm not just talking about outside uh, influences. I'm also talking about the condition of your heart, the desires that can burn within you. The ones that are going to give you hopeless satisfaction. That we are to fight temptation always, constantly. John Owen writes, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So what does it mean to fight or what does it mean to put sin to death? Habitual weakening. We want to be, again, we're being corny, but it works. We want to be tactical Christians, not tactical ones. And then we want to constantly be fighting, that we are fighting temptation. So, final question. Well, how do we put sin to death then? We talked about why we need to put it to death. We talked about what it means to actually kill sin. Well, how do we do that? All right, here we go. <clears throat> Number one, abide in Christ and rely on the Holy Spirit. Abide in Christ and rely on the Holy Spirit. In John 15, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you, you can do nothing. But he also goes on to talk about before that that the branches or the vines are, are going to be cut. Some are going to be pruned so that they would flourish. Some are going to be plucked so that they would be thrown in fire. 
abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ means to stand firm in what he has done and what he has said. Especially when it comes to this one, number one, this is the one that's like, man, I forgot. You're right. I totally forgot about that scripture. This is where we need to stand firm on. This is the part where we stand firm on. In addition to that, as we rely on the Holy Spirit, that's what Paul says in Romans 8, 13, right? If you live by the Spirit, you're going to put the, the, the deeds of the body to death. So we must rely on the Holy Spirit. Well, what does it mean to rely on the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit dwells in us, as I mentioned earlier, His job is to transform us, to comfort us, to conform us into the image of Christ. His job is to convict us. His job is to counsel us. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Number two, spiritual disciplines. Now, I'll speak briefly on this because you're going to hear about these throughout the rest of the sermon series, and we just talk about them a lot. Or better yet, let me go backwards a little bit. Let me keep going with abiding in Christ and relying on the Holy Spirit. Here's another thing why it's important to abide in Christ and to rely on the Holy Spirit. You can't do those if you don't know Jesus. So if you're going to abide in Christ, if you're going to rely on the Holy Spirit, you must first know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You must be truly converted. I mentioned this earlier in the sermon. Killing your sin is going to be on the docket, but knowing Christ is first. Knowing Christ is first. Number two, Spiritual disciplines, we talked about these last week. Spiritual disciplines include the ministry of the Word of God. Man, that that we need to know our Bibles. And we need to come to Scripture in humility because the Word of God penetrates and discerns the condition of the heart. That's going back to being honest. That Scripture is going to expose us right? Scripture discerns or Scripture teaches us about the condition of our heart. Scripture teaches us about the condition of our heart. Therefore, it's going to expose the condition of our heart. Scripture is not a pamphlet of suggestions. It is the Word of God. Another spiritual discipline includes prayer. Man, we must turn to God. We must seek God in prayer. And and some of you may already know this, especially when it comes to fighting temptation and lies are around you and temptation is happening and you turn to God in prayer. That's actually where the battle is at. That's actually where it's hard. Begging God for grace, begging God to, to help you in your time of need, to give you strength so that you can flee, so that you can run away from your sin or run away from the temptation of sin. I think it was Randy Alcorn that said, prayer is not preparation for the battle. Prayer is the battle. Number three, or no, we're still there, sorry. Spiritual discipline, so the word of God prayer, and finally, confession and and repentance. I want to talk a little bit about this. I met with our our student ministry earlier this week. This is what we talked about when it came to confession and repentance. That when it came to confession, 
It was agreement. One of the girls said it well. It's that we admit our sin. I was like, dang, that's really good. That means being honest with what's on the table. That means actually saying like, yeah, that's, I, I did that. Confession is agreeing with what has been brought before you and calling it like it is. Calling it like it is. Not using Christianese to say, oh man, you know what? I'm just struggling with these impure thoughts. Call it what it is. Be honest. And then when it comes to repentance, repentance is a change of direction. It's turning away from our sin and placing our trust in God. But that change of direction requires action. You can confess your sin and never repent. Turning away from our sin and turning to God requires action. Number three, Know your particular sins. Know your particular sins. And call it like it is, right? That's what we just said. We're going to call it like it is. Because sometimes, many Christians, many people, will say things like, oh, that's just the way I am. That is called, I think, an excuse. That's just an excuse. We know it's. That's just the way I am. I, you know, I've never really changed in that. Yes, that's called an excuse. Or some Christians will say, man, that's just the way my family is. It's this generational thing. I think that's also called shifting the blame. Call it like it is and know your particular sin. And it doesn't always have to be like this Oh, I don't know. How can I say it? When it comes to knowing your particular sin, it might even be something good. But you yourself know, I, I can't mess with that. Because if I do, I'll, I'll dive into that and I shouldn't. You need to know your particular sin. My, uh, my mom. Oh my gosh, I tell this to my son now. <laughs> but my mom would always tell my brothers and I, uh, because we were trying to be shady and clever, uh, she would tell us in Spanish, she, she would tell us, no te hagas, right? In other words, like, like don't be dumb. Like, you, it's not like you don't know, right? Like, some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, some of you do, right? That's what, that's what my mom would say. She would tell us all the time, especially when we're trying to be, like, clever about what we've done or when we're trying to be, like, shady or cover it up in a way that helps us, uh, paints us in a better light, right? My mom was just like straight up like gangster. She was just brutal. And she would just like, she's like five foot nothing. And she would come in and, and we, my brothers and I would try to cover some things up. And then she'd be like, no te hagas. Por favor, no te hagas. In other words, like stop being dumb. Like you know what you did. She's essentially saying, call it like it is. Like step up to it. It's already on the table. I hated that. I do that to my son now, right? We'll be at home, and we'll ask him for something, and he'll be, uh, oh, what's a good word? He'll be clever about something. And be like, no te hagas. Yes, sir. Because he knows, right? <laughs> he got caught. <laughs> right? So when it comes to knowing your particular sins, don't make excuses. No te hagas, right? Like, you know. Stop, stop shifting the blame. Stop deflecting. You know what it is 
you actually wrestle with, what it actually you struggle with, what actually uh, you know stirs up some of those temptations. And again, it may not always be, though it certainly like includes this. It may not just be outside influence. It's also going to be. It's actually what's inside. It's what's happening within the confines of your heart. Bitterness and lust and envy and just slander and horrible words. Again, when you read Ephesians 4, that's, that's what Paul is saying. You need to put away malice and bitterness and slander. You need to change these things because those things are actually happening, happening within the confines of your heart. And the only way for those things to actually be put to death is not only for you to know them, but also for you to trust in Christ so that the old self dies and the new self keeps maturing and growing. So be honest. I don't know what number we're on. Where are you? Know your particular sins. Number four, know the warning signs. Know the warning signs of those sins. Not the agas, right? Like you know what the warning signs are. I mean, I could think of several examples. Don't necessarily know where I would park, but I could think of, of several examples. Maybe I'll pick on some of the dudes, right? Maybe the single guys. I don't know. Why not? Before I would I would hang out with some of the guys, and I was actually a couple weeks ago I was hanging out with with a guy, and he was telling me, "Man, I really struggle with, uh, you know, really struggle with lust." And I was like, "Okay, so wh- how does that come about?" And he's like, "Man, when I'm alone with you know someone, I'm like, then why are you alone with someone?" I think uh, not just in pastoral ministry, but just in, in being, getting the privilege of discipling dudes. And this included like some of the things I would say, especially when I was younger. And it wasn't just because I was younger, it was because I was a sinner, right? Because uh, I didn't know Jesus. Sometimes guys like the whole Nuptagas would be super clever, right? Be like, I don't know, we just went to a party and then ah, we were just in bed together. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> like things led up to that. Know the warning signs. The reason they're warning signs is because when we actually commit our sin, it wasn't just like we got there. It just wasn't was, or it just didn't become. It led. Like some decisions got you here. Know the warning signs of that. This is where, additionally, this is where not only the word of God comes in, but this is also where community comes in. This is where community is such a a great part to the Christian life. I think it's in, in James 5, he says, confess your sin to one another so that you would pray for one another. He's like, man, confess. Like, accountability is good. And we must know that accountability is a byproduct of confessing our sin to one another. And so when it comes to knowing the warning signs, have someone you can text, have someone you can call, have someone you can go to. Because if we're, again, if we're just honest, you're going to be put in situations where there aren't going to be Christians around you all of the time. Like we're just being honest, calling it what it is. So don't only know your particular sins, know the warning signs and say something. Reach out. Number five, be committed to universal obedience. This one also comes from John Owen. 
Here's, here's what he means by universal obedience. Or better yet, here's what universal obedience means, and I'll expand on what he said. When it comes to universal obedience, don't just pay attention to this one area of your life. Do not just pay attention to this one area of your life. In other words, oftentimes, and even throughout this sermon, as I've been talking about killing sin, maybe you're thinking about that one particular sin. There's that one thing that just keeps beating you down. When it comes to universal obedience, it's, man, don't just focus on that one area of your life. That's not to say that you shouldn't place attention there, but don't focus just on this one area of your life because this is what John Owen expands on. He says, if you do not intend to obey God in every area of your life, then you really don't hate sin. And if you don't hate sin, then you don't love Christ. When it comes to this one sin that you simply can't get over, it's not that you hate it, it's that it's an inconvenience. Think about it. Now let's be very like, pragmatic in how we approach that. Let's, I'll, I'll use myself in that. So I'm saying in this, or better yet, we're, we're saying that don't place all your attention here. Because if you're placing all of your attention here, what you're saying is, man, as soon as I get this under control, I'm going to be uber godly. Right? That's, that's one argument in that process of logic. And all we're doing now is just trading one sin for another. So what you're saying is, man, I just have a lot of bitterness. And if I could just get rid of all this bitterness, I'll be good to go in the department of godliness. And all you've done is exchange bitterness for self-righteousness. So you just trade it out. Great, you're back to square one. Right? In addition to that, if we believe this, if I could only get rid of this one thing, if I could just get rid of one thing, what we're saying then is, if you can get rid of this thing and all of these other facets of life, you rank a 10, you rank an 11 on a scale of 1 to 10 in godliness. And we also know that's not true. We need to be honest. And so when it comes to universal obedience, Right? What, Owen, what Owen is essentially getting at is, yes, you need to place attention on this one area, and you should not neglect these other areas. And his, in his book, uh, not the mortification of sin, but in another one, he goes on to talk about helping this one dude um, who's, who's struggling with lust. And then he starts asking him, like, man, were you a part of a local church? The guy's like, yeah, are you giving? Like, he starts touching in these other areas, like tithing or community. He's like, are you plugged into these areas? Are these areas growing in your life? See, I think, again, this is something that we as Christians like to believe that, man, if I could just get over this one hump, then I'll be good. Then I'll, it'll all be okay. All of the, the ducks will be in the correct row. And all we're doing is just trading one sin for another. And we're believing the lie that, man, we are completely holy and godly in all of these other areas of life. And so really, we're just riding this cloud of self-righteousness. But we just wouldn't articulate it that way. Revival requires honesty. So we need to call it what it is. We need to be committed to universal obedience. All of us do. It's not just this, this one like, man, if I got this, me and God, we're going to be good. <laughs> Come on, 
right? We need to be committed to universal obedience. So, all of that being said, Christian, are you killing your sin? Are you killing your sin? I know it's exhaustive. Sometimes it's even discouraging. Sometimes it feels really overwhelming. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. That by killing sin, you are not doing this by your strength, but by the Spirit. You can do this. just want to encourage you. You can do this. You can kill your sin because Christ has died for you. It wasn't a polite gesture. It wasn't just something nice he was doing. It was the grace of God canceling the wrath of God on your behalf. You can do this. And if you don't know Jesus, let me just be straight up. Following Jesus is hard. Following Jesus is hard. But there is no true life apart from Jesus. There is no forgiveness of sins apart from Jesus. And as a result, I want you to consider the depth of your sin. I want you to consider God's wrath over you, that you are still considered an enemy of God. Then, I want you to consider what God has done. That he has sent his son to die on a cross for sinners. And as a result, you can come to know him by placing your trust in him and repenting of your sin. He is faithful to forgive. Church, if we are to grow in godliness and respond to the Spirit's work in revival, we must be killing sin. Let's pray. God, the Christian life is hard. Uh, some days, uh, I, you know, we feel really beat down. Some days are just heavy. Some days feel like it's going to be like this for the rest of our lives. Sometimes it can feel even uh, really exhausting and discouraging and depleting. But God, while those feelings and, and those realities certainly are true, I think we often forget your Holy Spirit. That all of these things are done not by our strength, but by you, Holy Spirit. And as a result, not only can we fight sin and fight it continuously, we could also turn to you in a time of need. That as a result of the work of Christ and you, Spirit, in us, we can approach the Father for grace and mercy. And so, God, as we respond to you this morning through giving and, and uh, communion and, and through song, God, I pray that we would grow in confidence or that we would have confidence to approach you, Father, and receive mercy and grace in a time of need. 
that you are pleased with us because of what Christ has done for us. And so I just pray that that would be, oh, the cry of our heart, that that would be our pursuit, grace and mercy with confidence in approaching the Father. Lord, as we transition into a time of tithes and offering, Lord, I pray that we would be um, good stewards and that you would give us discernment in the use of these finances. In addition to that, God, I pray uh, that we would give sacrificially, that we would give uh, generously and faithfully, all to your glory and our good. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.